Welcome to the Grasping Life Podcast. I'm your host, Lane Kimbrough. I'm in my early 20s and I'm on a journey to become the absolute best version of myself. It's inspired me to start this podcast to speak to exceptional people on all things life, business, mindset, faith, and so much more. I'm really glad that you're here. This episode is part of the Life and Finance Edition, where we hear and learn from some of the best professionals in the finance and investing fields on the unique career journeys and stories, interesting work, valuable perspectives and lessons learned, life outside of work, and everything in between. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, I had the absolute pleasure to record Mark Carlton. Mark has worked for Liberty Media since 2003, recently retiring from his position as CFO, and is now a senior consultant where he's even more involved in the business. Liberty Media is John Malone's mass media company, notably owning Sirius XM, the Atlanta Braves, and Formula One. In our conversation, Mark and I discuss his many years of wisdom and experience on business, finance, people, and life. As someone entering the world of finance, Mark is truly someone I look up to. I learned so much from this conversation, and I truly believe that his principles are universal to everybody. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making investment decisions. Lane Kimbrough, the Grasping Life podcast, and its guests cannot be held responsible for any kind of loss incurred by playing any of the information presented. Furthermore, information in this podcast may be outdated. This interview occurred during the middle of April. You'll begin hearing Mark talk about some of the current events during the time, as well as some of his predictions for how COVID will affect the future that are still super relevant today. I hope you enjoy. That's getting, that's getting retail, that's getting hammered. Mm-hmm. Um, and now people getting far more used to grocery delivery. I mean, we were never grocery delivery people. And now that is, you know, people have way more confidence in that. And so retail space and stores in general, um, struggling with that. Yeah. And, and now the business office space, perhaps going through a, a change. And what, you know, what I think is interesting about this, obviously, regardless of what the you know what the terrible death toll is or or that this you know it is not going to be the largest death toll relative to a lot of things that have happened Mm. but i think it is going to have a more lasting um effect and drive more permanent change into the world um than we think and i think 9-11 did that right you know it was 3700 deaths but it changed travel forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think you're going to see things happen here in terms of uh, uh, readiness for pandemics and in terms of uh, public investment in different vaccines and in emergency training at, to be able to better deal uh, with these kind of things going forward. And we mm-hmm. may, you know, we, we may be wearing masks and gloves for a couple of years or more. Mm-hmm. And yeah. certainly, as you look at business, the economics of these businesses change meaningfully uh, if you have limits on people who can attend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have to have to adapt. Yeah, that's crazy. So, I mean, are you? How are you approaching that as a company right now? Are you just trying to, you know, as new as new information comes up, you're adjusting, or do you guys already have kind of a plan set for, you know, post post COVID? Well, we, you know, I would say we have a number of contingency plans with most of them about how we would deal with it 
depending on how it happens. And obviously, you cannot make these decisions in a vacuum. Uh, in baseball, you have the league itself and all the other owners that you've got to consider. Um, and you have the players. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the decision on how a baseball season may may lay out, and you have television, you know, national television, local television partners. So there's a lot of people that are involved in that discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're trying to make sure that we understand the the financial implications of any of those. Are we better to play games without fans? Or are we better just to not play games at all? Mm. And, uh, you know, how does the economics look if we sell every fifth seat to provide enough social distancing for people mm. or those kind of scenarios? So I would say we've got a lot of living um, dynamic models that we continue to work on as scenarios come forth or as uh, plans get solidified. Same with, with Formula One. You know, we have looked at at going to, you know, going to Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Saudi Arabia or Russia and taking the entire group, all the teams, all the cars, all the mechanics, all the broadcasters, and running races out, you know, in the Saudi desert. Wow. Um, and staying over there for two or three months and just operate races out there in one giant quarantine kind of an area. So we've looked at all kinds of options. And, you know, you've seen recently what the UFC guys have looked at doing, whether it's doing a show from a Native American reservation kind of a land or going to an island somewhere and trying to uh to do a show there so people are getting very creative um to try to figure this stuff out yeah that's 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 really cool it's kind of uncharted territories just in so many ways it yeah, is in indeed so many ways yeah that's really cool very cool so I, I i've always wanted to ask so you i mean even as the cfo and now as kind of this senior business consultant are you do you have a hand in each of the businesses or are you focused on any few in particular? No, generally now, although I'm involved and our whole leadership team is always involved mm-hmm. in what's going on with all of them, I spend more time specifically with with the Braves, mm-hmm. uh, Sir- Sirius XM, and Live Nation. Yeah, that's and awesome. I'm on, live, live, I'm on all three of those boards, and I'm more actively involved with those three, um, less with Formula One, less with Curate, uh, and less with charter, uh, but still involved in those because, uh, uh, at this time you want to get everyone's input and you want to get as much information as you can from mm-hmm. everyone who's got thoughts or views about it, um, on what you might be able to do. Yeah, totally. Totally. I think it's so interesting. So you've been working at Liberty media since 2003 and I've climbed up the ranks. you did a stint as CFO. You retired this last July. And I'm just curious, like, how does it, does it feel like you're retired or now that you're kind of stepping into this business consultant role, does it, does it feel kind of like you're still, you know, in the, in work all the time? Yeah. The, the interesting thing is that since we're not an operating company, mm-hmm. the CF, the CFO role at Liberty is a very different kind of a role. So explain that. Explain that to me. Well, if if you're a large operating company, typically um, the corporate development group reports to the CFO. The mm-hmm. 
the tax group does, the uh, investor relations group often does, uh, human resources, obviously accounting and finance and the like. But because we are a deal company, our corporate development group is our business. So that group mm-hmm. reports directly to the CEO. And because tax is such a strategic component of of one of the areas where we can differentiate, um, our tax group reports directly to the CEO. Hmm. Uh, and because we're such a small holding company, we really don't have a large human resources group because we only have you know seventy or eighty employees. Mm-hmm. So that that group is very small. So the the CFO typically spends much more time consulting and working with all the investee companies hmm. on their development activities and their uh, financing activities and kind of how to maximize their shareholder return. So for me, what, what the change was is, you know, I was on three public company boards and we had six of our own stocks that traded publicly. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was nine sets of financial statements every quarter. Mm. So I had been looking at multiple numbers, sets of financial statements every quarter for 35 years. And it, it just got to the point where I was like, I'm, I'm bored doing this. I can't look mm-hmm. at a thousand pages of this a quarter. Um, I, I just don't want to do it anymore. And interestingly, I got that idea from Charlie Munger, who is, you know, Warren Buffett's partner. And I read an interview with Charlie Munger and they said, Charlie, you're 90 years old or whatever. Um, do you still set goals for yourself each year? And he said, actually, I set anti-goals. Hmm. And the interviewer was like, anti-goals? I, 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 what does that even mean? He said, well, I set goals for things I don't want to do instead of things hmm. that I want to do. He said, I, I don't want to have any meetings before 10 a.m. I don't like to get up early in the morning. So I've got a goal of having no meetings before 10 a.m. He said, I've got a goal of I don't want to work with any subsidiary management teams that I just don't like personally. Mm. So I'm not going to work with those anymore. So I listened to that and I I said, what is it that I what anti-goal do I have? And I said, I know what it is. I'm sick of looking at all those thousands of pages of financial statements every every quarter. Uh, I don't want to do that anymore. So really. The, the half of my job that is consulting with all of our companies, um, doing compensation for most of the CEOs, um, all of those parts of it sitting on the boards have continued. The part I just don't do anymore is looking at those statements every quarter, and I can tell you I'm thrilled at having done that. It's a 1,000 pages a quarter, and like I said, I've been doing it for 35 years, so that's you know, that's, you know, I've done it 150 quarters or something mm-hmm. that's in a row. Yeah. I'd had enough. Yeah. That's insane. That's, that's so cool. It's, it's, I think, I mean, the business consulting analyst role is like, that's, that sounds cool as it is. And that seems right up your alley. It's the strategy, it's the analytics, it's actually providing direction, all that kind of stuff, which is super interesting. Did you, I, did you? I can add ahead. more value doing that than looking at financial yeah. statements. At this point, totally. I don't add that much value looking at financial statements. So. Totally. Yeah. So you're actually like you're defining what's what's the best spend of your time, and that's what you're getting to do all the time now, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. What other did you set any other anti goals other than just like 
did you apply this to your whole life or is this just more, this was, um, you know, no, I, I, I have done that. And, um, and I would say that the, those were the main anti goals I had, but mm-hmm. the other regular goals obviously are hard. You know, I want to get in better mm-hmm. condition. I want to, uh, lose weight, drink less, exercise more, um, you know, live more in the moment, blah, blah, blah. Um, so those generally are hard, but I would say that this, this forced break here has been very interesting, you know, for all of us mm-hmm. and has challenged everyone differently, depending on how you, you know, where you get your joy out of your life and how you operate it, but being forced to stop and being limited from doing things. And for me, primarily that's travel, right? So mm-hmm. I, I crossed over 4 million actual flight miles oh my gosh. Um, late last year, you know, which is the equivalent of flying like 140,000 um, miles a year for 30 straight years. And so I now have gone six weeks without being on an airplane mm-hmm. I, I haven't gone three weeks without being on an airplane in 35 years. Mm. Rarely even a week. I would say, you know, last year at this time and through the end of the year, I was traveling at least once a week, if not twice, probably doing mm. um, 150 flight legs a year. Wow. Wow. And so you go from that to to actually not doing any and staying in the same place. And it's been very, very strange um, because I'm used to being in hotels and I'm used to being in different cities and used to racing to the airport and jumping on the plane and, uh, and now not doing that. So it is a mm-hmm. very, very foreign feeling for all of us to, to do this. Now I don't have, you know, my daughter's 23 years old, so I don't, you know, have young kids hanging out around here, which some of the people have to deal with, but everyone's Mm -hmm. dealing with something a little bit different and everyone is in a, is in a, a, uh, slightly different situation, but it is a time to kind of reassess what you're doing and, and what you love about it and what you hate about it and, and kind of take stock where you are. Totally. Yeah. You, you mentioned your daughter here and it just, it's, I mean, it's tough, right? Traveling that much. And so, I mean, how do you feel like, you know, outside of work traveling hundred and something thousand miles a year, how do you feel like that affected just kind of like we said, your health, your um, relationships, being in the moment, all that kind of stuff. Do you feel, do you feel like you finally got kind of a hold on it and you had a strategy for it? Or do you feel it was pretty difficult at times? Well, it's interesting. I have had to, it's been really good, but I've had to work at it because hmm. I had groups of friends and people that I connected with. If I was in Atlanta, um, you know, there's one um, big investment hedge fund that's in us in Atlanta. We've got the team guys. My daughter was at Emory. So I kind of had an an Atlanta process that I would go through. If it was in New York, we had all of our bankers and we had all of our, um, you know, we had Live Nation people and SiriusXM people in New York. My fiance was in New York. If it was LA, it was a different group. If it was Denver, it was a different group. And so you kind of planned your social life in terms of where you were going to be. 
mm-hmm. um, and who you ate with and who you hung out with. And so now I've had to um, kind of assess and evaluate all those relationships and decide, okay, I'm having a Zoom conference call with, with who? Who am I going to reach out to and check on? Who am I going to talk to? Uh, because I'm sitting here in Florida and Florida is the one place where I have a few friends here, but obviously you're not getting together with those friends. They're, you know, they're quarantined in their place. You're quarantined in yours. So mm-hmm. you've got to kind of rethink and reprioritize those. In the past, mm-hmm. they were self-prioritizing. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in LA for three days this week. And I'll see these 10 people in those three days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So I got to ask, like, after, you know, after this whole quarantine hap- thing happens, do you feel like, at least from your last six weeks of just being in Florida and being kind of hunkered down, do you feel like anything else is going to change? Like, are you going to approach things a little differently or do you think it'll kind of, you know, fit into the the same rhythm? No, I, I actually, uh, I think people who were naysayers about, about uh you know remote work and the like will be far less naysayers about it i i I think our people's focus and ability to execute and and i would say a lot of that is the ease and the quality of the technological tools that we have to do that you can have legitimate conferences you can see people's eyes you can Mm -hmm. read their body language you can you can understand how they're feeling and as we go through this, where before we would have a, you know, a meeting in the office and people would kind of, you know, find their way in or switch one meeting for the next. Now it's like, okay, let's do a, let's do a conference video at nine. And we do that for 30 minutes. And it's like, okay, everyone go do your thing. We're going to get back together at two thirty. And I find that we're having much more shorter more focused meetings mm. instead of kind of general discussions Yeah, and have a meeting, task out some work, go do it, get back together, check on people's progress. So yeah. I think that it will be a fundamental change because nobody will have done this. I mean, mm-hmm. you can watch movies of world war two where the, you know, at night the, the people in England had to turn out all the lights and go down into bomb shelters and, sit there for hours and hours on end. None of us have ever been through that mm-hmm. um, here. So mm-hmm. it is a, it's a completely different thing. And I think this is one that, you know, that w- we're not going back to normal. I don't know what the new will be, mm-hmm. but it's not normal and it's probably not a new normal. It's, it's just new. Hmm. That's really interesting. Really interesting. See, so, I mean, it's the whole situation. It's just, I mean, in a larger sense, it's just the unexpected, right? For a lot of people. I mean, obviously there's a lot of really sad stuff going on and, you know, everyone being affected, but outside of that, the people that, you know, aren't affected by the disease, it's just, it's an unexpected thing. And, you know, we, we can all, like you said, we can be going in our normal, but then as soon as we kind of get knocked out of that, then it's, you know, the unanticipated, all that kind of stuff. And it's just, that stuff happens all the time, right? We, we would love to just be going good, be going easy all the time. And so I'm just, I'm just curious more from like a looking back standpoint for you, how do you approach when something say it's not even COVID, but something unexpected or unanticipated comes either into work or into life? Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you, how do you approach it? 
Yeah, and and my approach on that, and I would say that that you know mine may well be different than a lot, but mm. my approach all along um, has been in any of these situations to anticipate what are the worst things that could happen and figure out in advance what I would do if that happened. Uh, and, you know, I've worked with a lot of companies and with a lot of very entrepreneurial CEOs. Um, and most CEOs do not think that way, right? Mm. They are looking positive. They are looking ahead. They are looking forward. They're in full go mode. And, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why I maybe ended up in, in public accounting as long as I did or in that CFO role was my natural tendency to look at the downside of things. Because if you're pleasantly surprised, that's great. You don't lose any sleep over that. But if you're negatively surprised, then you do lose sleep over it. So part of what I do is I grind and I grind and I grind through every scenario in my mind of what could happen. And what would we do then? And what would we do then? And what I've then found is if, if any of these scenarios then end up actually occurring, um, I'm generally calmer and better prepared than most because I've already thought about it. Yeah. You know, if, you know, I've thought about if we had to get rid of a quarter of our staff at Liberty, which there's no scenario I see that we would have to do that, but I, I, I have a plan already in place that says this is what we would do. If we had to get rid of 20 people, these are the 20 people it would be. Uh, I don't know why we might have to, but, you know, that's just kind of how my mind works. Hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. It's been very hard for a number of our staff to be looking at all these downside scenarios of all of our companies, right? Hmm. So we started out and we said, okay, you know, this was March 10th. All right, Live Nation, we're not going to have any shows until June 1st. What does that mean, right? And then a week goes by and we're like, oh, shit. We, we're going to look and say we're not going to have any shows until September 1st. Uh-huh. And we go through all that analysis and we look at it and we evaluate it and we consider it. And then it's like, okay, oh shit, we better look at that we're not going to have any shows until January 1st of next year. And you go through and you run all, all those analysis. What was happening is a lot of our team was getting depressed, hmm. right? Because, you know, you take any company and you just say, okay, What's going to happen if this company has no revenue, you know, for the next quarter or nine months or year? And of course, any company is going to look dismal in that scenario. But so what we ended up having to do was we created a green team, right? That was the opportunity team. And so we gave the people in all of our teams, they were working on the red team, which was downside analysis, right? But they also were working on the green team that says what opportunities are out there? What companies are going to tip over? Where do we have liquidity and opportunity to buy? Where are there going to be deals? Um, You know, the Baron von Rothschild hundreds and hundreds of years ago said, when there's blood in the street, buy real estate. Hmm. And we at Liberty have been a company that generally have had um, lots of flexibility to be able to um, to have liquidity and have the ability to move in very difficult times. 
Hmm. I mean, we, we bought Sirius XM, you know, in March of 2009, right in the middle of the big meltdown, but we had the capital and we, we had the resolve to actually go do a large deal at that time. And it's ended up being, you know, one of our most accretive transactions ever. Um, but we, we found that it was important to give our team something positive to look at and to say, we're going to be okay. And we're going to look at things on the offensive and you don't need to be just thinking about downside and gloom and doom and who are the 20 employees that we may, you know, that there's a one half percent chance, but you run that scenario and you're putting real people's names by that. Hmm. And so that's very hard mentally uh, for a lot of our team. Of course, it wasn't for me just because that's how I've always operated. Hmm. Um, And most of the CEOs I've worked with are the opposite, right? They rarely Hmm. look at all the downsides, they are looking ahead at the upsides and what the potential is and what the opportunity is. Um, and that's why sometimes I think people end up, they end up in the positions where they're most effective or they're most naturally comfortable operating. Hmm. That's really interesting. So it's looking at both, you know, what can go wrong and also how you just make the most out of it. You do what you can control and just worry about that. That's really interesting. I, I got to ask, so you talked about SiriusXM back in 2009. How do you feel like Liberty, how do they set themselves up so well to be able to capitalize on those opportunities when these dips dips like this happen? Well, I would say first off, um, we are long-term owners. We're not investors. Mm-hmm. And we generally look to make money through the operations of our companies, not simply through through the financing of them. So your typical private equity asset is going to be held three to five years. Um, Generally, the private equity guys will put as much leverage on an asset as they can um, because they make their money through management fees and through a chunk of the ride on the upside. They need to get money deployed. We at Liberty don't, we don't raise funds that way. We don't operate that way. We don't have to get any money deployed. So we're charged with doing good deals. We're not just charged with doing deals and getting money deployed. Mm. So um, we generally finance our companies to put them in a position to survive and thrive over the long term. Mm. And, you know, we've been associated with Discovery since 1986. We've owned QVC off and on since 88. So it's not like we only own these companies for three or four or five years and then we move them on and go raise another fund. So generally, our companies are levered a little bit less. Our focus is on long-term operating strength, which puts our companies in a better position in times of distress. Two, um, we, we maintain liquidity at all times because we, we are interested in making a profit, and we don't necessarily care whether we are uh, investing more in our companies or using highly valued stock to buy other assets. We're, we're one of the few companies that oftentimes we don't care if a stock goes up or down, right? If the stock goes up, okay, then we've got a valuable currency that we can go buy something else with. If the stock goes down, that's okay because we've got a lot of capital and we can buy back that stock at a lesser price. What we care about is value, and we have our own views of value on our assets, 
Um, as I like to say, we're often wrong, but seldom in doubt. And we trade based on that. Hmm. If company X trades at $10 a share, and we think company X is worth 12 or $13 a share, we'll buy more stock. Hmm. If we think company X is worth 7 or $8 a share, then we may go ahead and try to issue that stock and buy another company. Um, or do an exchangeable piece of debt against that stock that we think may be a little overvalued. So we have liquidity on hand all the time in case we can make money on the downside of these businesses. And that has positioned us well um, in these times of distress. The, the private equity company that has excessive leverage on it, they're worried right now about their own survival. They're not in a position where they've got the financial liquidity and flexibility to go buy things that might be cheap. Uh-huh. We, we just do by definition. And in these cases of distress, we're just better positioned than most people to get it done. We can go fast. Yeah. We've got in-house tax people, in-house finance people, in-house deal structuring people. So a deal for us can come together quite quickly. And the the serious thing, you know, from the first phone call to closing, you know, was like a 30, 30 day kind of a time frame. Mm. It was not months and months of analysis. You sit with the finance guys, you figure out the ideal financing structure. You sit with the tax guys, you figure the ideal tax structure. Um, you come up with a with a model and a plan on the business. You figure out what you can do and then you go do it. So we've got very little bureaucracy, not a lot of committees and processes. We get everyone in the same room, people weigh in and we decide. That's very interesting. So I got to ask, I mean, you're, you're definitely thinking about the long term. And so how do you think about an exit then? So how do you think, I mean, when is it when cash flows start to slow down or is it just, how do you approach that? Uh, uh, we look at exits when we believe that a particular asset is better suited to be in someone else's hands than ours. Um, when we did the transaction with Lionsgate and Stars, we own Stars, the movie channel, and I think our view was we were going to have a very hard time for Stars to continue to get carriage and drive great economics as an orphan network. It needed to be with somebody that had a bunch of other networks and a bunch of other assets that they could combine together. Mm-hmm. And so it was at that time that we said this asset is better owned by somebody else other than us, uh, and they can drive it better. And so we we moved it over there in a tax efficient manner, and our shareholders then got to choose because they got Lionsgate shares in exchange for their Stars shares, mm-hmm. and so they could choose to hold those Lionsgate shares and continue to participate in Stars and Lionsgate going forward or they could sell those shares themselves on their own basis. And that is generally how we look to exit. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, so I kind of want to get back. You talked about your public accounting career at KPMG. And I'm just curious, how do you feel like that set you up for Liberty Media? How do you feel like that helped you? Well, it was interesting. I mean, it helped me really, really a lot, but only in limited areas. I mean, the benefit of, of public accounting as a training ground is you, you understand financial statements. You understand 
how to analyze a company and analyze its profitability and analyze its cash flow, flow production potential. You also get to see management um, in action. You're, you're in your, the accounting firm's company's offices. Um, you know, I sat out at Liberty or TCI or some of those affiliates or other clients, you know, every day for 20 years. So you get to see a lot of management teams in action. You see some that are really good and are really thoughtful, and you see others that aren't so good. So you're able to try to take from the best of those and say, if I ever get in this situation, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do that. Hmm. Um, and you see the companies fail and you see them succeed and you really are not taking any of the risk of ownership. You get a seat at the table, uh, but you have no risk of ownership. Now you also have no upside of ownership. You know, people in the public accounting profession make a very nice wage, but there are no stock options. There's no restricted mm -hmm. shares. There's no, you know, you don't have a lot of billionaires, you know, or probably any that work at public accounting firms. But you have mm -hmm. people that make a really, really nice amount of pay. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a great training ground. Um, uh, it is hard work. So you people learn a good work ethic. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a great um, interview for those companies and your clients who get a chance for a month or six months or a year or 20 years to see how you operate on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis, not just a 30-minute interview, how you are when you come in after a late night, how you are, you know, when you have to go pick up sandwiches on Saturday afternoon, um, how you get along with people at your level or higher levels or lesser levels. So I think it's a great, it's a great training ground. I think mm -hmm. inherently uh, accountants are, are, generally conservative folks and i think it attracts a different ilk of people but you do have a lot of uh big time business execs that have come through that path so i think that is a plus what i didn't realize is as i came across the liberty in 2003 i feel like mm -hmm. i knew really a lot about a third of liberty mm -hmm. i knew everything about it about a third of it mm -hmm. um and what I, the parts that I didn't know about were the development process and the network of people and the bankers um, coming in with ideas and that process of building the models and whittling these opportunities down to the ones you wanted to pursue. I got involved as the, you know, accountant leading the due diligence charge once those decisions were made. And I would get a call when I'm at KPMG from Dave Flowers or David Koff, whoever was running the deal. It's mm -hmm. like, all right, Carlton, we need a due diligence team in Germany next week. We're looking at this German cable deal. So I was involved right then from the get-go, but I had no understanding of how we got from zero to we're deploying a team in Germany next mm -hmm. week. I had no knowledge of that. So uh, that was a bit of an eye-opener for me when I – came across and some of the people at Liberty who I knew, but really didn't know what they did. I had a newfound appreciation for how integral they were to that process. That's very interesting. And so, I mean, you started out. So then when you moved over to Liberty, what did you start? What did you start out at? I started out as run as being um, kind of the co-head of corporate development. 
Okay. Um, uh, another another gentleman who was out of McKinsey was running all of the the retail and e-commerce kind of businesses, and I was running the rest of them. But you know, it was an interesting story when um, I had probably placed. You know, I first got sent out to TCI as a young auditor in 1982, uh, September of 82. I stayed out there for 21 years. Over the course of that time, I probably got 50 or 60 people from KPMG jobs at TCI or Liberty or other kind of affiliated entities wow. in accounting or financial reporting or operations or finance or HR or what have you, tax. Um, I'd never had a job offer. Huh. And so after 21 years, when I was going to leave the Liberty family and move to Kansas City and do Sprint, be the lead partner on Sprint. You know, I got a call from John Malone that said, mm -hmm. you know, you're you're going to moving to Kansas City and not doing Liberty stuff anymore. That doesn't help me out very much. Why don't you just come <laughs> to work here? So I took the job at Liberty without having any knowledge what the job was, no knowledge of what the job paid, no knowledge of what the equity package was, no knowledge at all. I just said, OK, John, and hung up the phone. And so for the first few years, it wasn't very good. Things were pretty tough, you know, from 2003 to 2008. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were over the 2000, we still were in the hangover of the 2000 internet crash. Of course, you weren't even alive then. So <laughs> um, we were in the hangover of that. And, and at, at times I wondered if it was a good move because my, my base pay at KPMG was way higher than my pay at Liberty. And so I took probably a 50% base pay cut to come work at Liberty. Now, I had bonus potential and we had a whole bunch of equity grants and equity upside. But for the first five years, those equity grants had no value. Hmm. The stocks did not perform well. And so, you know, there were times during that, that you know, period up until 09 when I was like, well, I wonder if this was a boneheaded stunt financially. Hmm. Professionally, it was great. But was it a boneheaded stunt financially um, or not? And uh, but then in in '09 things started really really going, and um, you know I, I would say I was yeah I was thirty or forty percent prepared to do my job when I came over. It really took me three or four years, five years probably to really. And at the time, and I was forty three years old, so you know it took me till I was almost fifty years old until I thought all right, I know what I'm doing here. I know wow. how to add value. Hmm. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's and really interesting. Young, young people look at that and, you know, I get a lot of questions that says, okay, wait a minute, you, you oversee a professional baseball team and this concert company and the sprigging race car company. You've got the coolest sprigging job um, I've ever heard of in my life. How do I get that job? And I'm like, well... You know, you you show up and you keep your brain open and you just keep showing up and working hard for 15, 20, 25 years. And then if you get really lucky after showing up and working hard for 25 years, then you may get an opportunity to do something like this. You know, I didn't train for this job. Um, I didn't have it in my career development plan that I was going to get this job. Uh, you know, you, you just cannot control 
your career planning that well. You think you can, but you can't. But what you try to do is you try to learn and you try to build on your foundation and build that pyramid up and learn from your mistakes and learn from other people's mistakes and keep getting better and better and better to put you in a position to get these jobs. It yeah. took, you know, it took me 21 years of working to put me in a position to get this opportunity. After wow. five years or 10 years or 15 years, I never would have had an opportunity to do this job. Hmm. And that is where some of the younger generation folks feel like they can plan their career a lot more proactively. Um, and I look at that as being, you know, generally futile. You cannot look ahead that much to predict what's going to happen. And, and February 15th, I, I mean, I couldn't look ahead to see what was going to happen March 15th. Hmm. You know, the world has completely changed. So any plans anybody had, you know, for whatever they were going to do, you know, a bunch of young kids who graduated in December at college and were, you know, going to start new jobs, you know, in March, you know, none of them have started those, those jobs. That's just, mm -hmm. you know, you can't plan like that. So, you know, that's generally my message to people is, Keep learning, keep building, um, and keep showing up. And that's been the single best quality I've had throughout my career is that I keep showing up. That's super useful advice. Yeah, no, I love that. So, I mean, I just got to ask, I just want to, I'm just trying to see from your perspective. So how do you think about the future then? So, I mean, do you feel... I mean, it's, it's so, I agree with you. It's so hard to predict. And the more you try to plan it out, the less it's probably going to go that way. But so, I mean, is there a sense of you're like, okay, you know, I want to be running these deals. I want to be running these companies. Or did you kind of just, you felt like you fell into that? I mean, was, was there a little direction there, a little more intention or? No, I, I, I'd say I liked it and I okay. was interested in that side of it, but no. Um, you know, I could have been coming over as the, as the CFO or as the head of finance or as the controller, uh, and that would have been fine. I liked the deal side. I mean, the, the truth is I was never a very good accountant or auditor. That was not my skill. I was always way better with people and way better at building teams than I ever was a great accountant. Um, but you know, I, I, I think the key is to be, is to be open and to be adaptable and to pay attention. Right. I, I don't worry. I don't lose sleep over where we're going to be six to nine months from now. Now I live conservatively and I live within my means, which mm -hmm. is an important thing for everyone to do. Uh, because you can't control what's going to happen. And if you get yourself stuck at the wrong time, um, with a liquidity issue, you can really get scorched by it. And there's a whole bunch of companies in the last month that were close to getting um, deals done or financings done, and those things fell apart, and the mm -hmm. companies maybe had to furlough all their employees or shut down. So, you know, trying to to give yourself as much flexibility as you can and being conservative so that you can adapt. But mm -hmm. I can't uh, if you asked me a year ago, if you asked me on New Year's of 19, could I have predicted what I was doing New Year's of 20? No. 
And New Year's of 20, I couldn't predict where I am now, sitting Mm -hmm. here in Florida for six weeks, you know, with the world, you know, something happening that nobody could have comprehended. So what I try to do is not lose any sleep or stress out about these things that I don't know, I can't predict, Mm -hmm. but to remain adaptable and say, okay, no matter what happens, I'll adapt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if half of my net worth goes away, then I'll live more simply. Hmm. And I'll make these changes in my life and it'll be fine. Um, but to keep your eyes open and don't assume that things are going to go back to the way they were. Hmm. Um, you know, my, my fiance is a Broadway producer and Broadway shows operate on a very tight margin. And if there are rules going forward that you can only sell every other seat, or if people are uncomfortable coming to shows, there's almost no Broadway shows that could be put on because mm-hmm. the margin is so small that if you can only sell every other ticket, the show cannot make a profit. Just wow. can't. And so you, you have to be able to say, all right, what are we going to do? How, how, how will we adapt to that? What, mm-hmm. what are we going to do with these changes? Rather than assuming, oh, everything is going to be the same. We just have to wait a little while and then we're just going to go back to normal. I, I think I, my outlook on it is that there is no there is no normal. Things mm-hmm. constantly change. You can't predict them. You have to be able to adapt to mm-hmm. them. Well, I really like that point. Yeah, that's that's it's making me kind of reassess my mindset to it. It's it's that's really valuable. Yeah. So I mean, I got to ask what other than being adaptable, what it can be hard skills, it can be soft skills, kind of like you said the the dealing with people, but what is important for you to be able to do the job successfully as either the CFO or the role you're in now as a business consultant? The key, the the key is one you you've got to you've got to have good people working underneath you that have a sense of purpose and a sense of of uh, involvement and relevance in what they're doing and clarity as to what their task is why they're doing it, how they fit into the team, um, and development plans for them. One of the things I've been doing for years is I make it a practice, uh, you know, with myself and with all the people that report to me of putting myself out of work all the time. I try to take all of the responsibilities that I have and get rid of them each year and push them down to someone um, that's coming up through the ranks and have them assume those positions. So I have the flexibility to do the job of the next person up the ladder or to fill a void of the next person up the ladder. Anyone who has a job and holds onto it tightly and protects it um, limits their ability to move up. If you're irreplaceable at your job, you can't get promoted. And I found that by putting myself completely out of work over and over again, I keep getting promoted instead of getting fired hmm. or replaced. And the, you know, the biggest joy that I have is when there are people that are part of my team who I can give these tasks to, have them learn them and adapt to them, and then force them to give them up a year or two years later. It's like, okay, 
Susie, I've been on this board for two years. You're now on it. And I'll work with you on it, but you are now on this board and your job is to manage this and do this and do that. And I'll help you with it, but they then do it. And then when we get to a goal setting session a year or two years later, I'm like, okay, you are now no longer on this board. You've got to give one of your, one of your people, one of these three folks that work for you, one of them is now on this board and they're going to do it. And you know, that is, I find that to be very powerful and it, it gives the team a real sense of purpose and a real sense of, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm relevant to this. I'm building, I'm growing myself. Um, and I think that is the key. I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not the best model builder. I'm not the best risk assessor. I'm not the best, you know, company evaluator um but i think having really good people and empowering those people to get better um just is way more powerful mm-hmm. and and gives you way more leverage and, and the people and i've seen it year after year after year of the people that are just holding on tight to what they have and the access they have that is limiting mm-hmm. um if, if you're if you're only as good as the current job that you have and how you do on that, you're never going to get out of that job. You can't get up. You can't move up. It's a great perspective. Yeah. Thank you. So I got to ask you off of that. So how you talked about, you know, kind of almost delegating a little bit and helping people be able to do your job. So how, how else do you think about organizing your time? Like, what do you, what do you try to focus on? And this is kind of, we could start with work, but I also kind of want to hear your perspective on your time, you know, at work and then also outside of work as well. I um, I spend a lot of time working on on staying in the moment, regardless of what I'm doing. And this will be a life a life's pursuit for me because it's very hard. Um, and I said it when I worked in public accounting, and I say it to some of the people now that you know I've got enough work for to have any of those people work 24 hours a day for the rest of their lives. I got plenty of work, tons of it. And I can keep you busy 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the remainder of your life. And it's up to you to find the mix of that, of how you're going to spend your time and how effective you're going to be. So the, the focus on being in the moment helps me not waste any time. The worst thing is that when you're in one place and you feel like you should be somewhere else, Hmm. you're not only doing justice, you know, you're doing an injustice to where you are and an injustice to where you feel like you want to be. And that's the worst situation to be in. So I focus very hard on, on doing as good a job as I can in the time I have allotted. And this is a skill that I've been practicing for 40 years. Um, I would say I'm, I'm average, probably not meaningfully above average at it, but I'm average at it. And I have to work at it every day mm. and really focus on doing the best I can do in the time I have allotted. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing ever. It's not the best model ever. It's not the best deck ever, but I could spend four hours or 40 hours or 400 hours 
on that deck. And the deck may be better at 400 hours than 40, but I've got to evaluate, is that the highest and best use of that other 360 mm-hmm. hours? Mm-hmm. And you have to prioritize your time and and make sure you're doing what you are comfortable with. Because if if you're not comfortable with how your time is allocated, that creates stress and anxiety within yourself. Now, that doesn't mean you don't work a lot. Uh, the concept of, of work-life balance, uh, I think, is a myth. What you're seeking is work-life harmony. Work-life and your harmony, your harmony may be, you know, uh, working 95 hours a week. That may be your harmony. And as long as that's your harmony, that's okay. But you've got to accept the things that you then can't do. You know, the kids that get out of school and go to work for investment banks, these kids are going to be working 80 to 100 hours a week for two years. That is the investment you choose to make. And you're saying, okay, for two years, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to work 80 to 100 hours a week. And that limits my time to do all these other things. But I've got to figure out how I'm going to allot my time to be able to have that harmony. Um, it just doesn't work well if you want that job, but you only want to work 40 hours a week, right? That tells you you should yeah. get a different different job to find that harmony. But yeah. the key is, is to be comfortable and in the moment and effective where you are. Hmm. And if it's watching your brother's soccer game, you need to be in the moment watching that soccer game or taking your significant other out to dinner um, or whatever it is, or being at work that you are there, you are in the moment, and you are maximizing your focus and your efficiency while you're there. Terrible feeling to be in one place and feel like you need to be somewhere else. Yeah, totally. um, but it is a lifetime quest. Um, it, it is a perpetual pursuit of perfection that you just will never reach. No mm-hmm. one does. Yeah, I think that's great. I had someone the other day kind of explain to me, they said, your life is, you know, work-life balance is also kind of BS, but it's more, it goes through seasons, right? And so the same way that you have the summer season, you have the fall season, you have winter, your life kind of goes, you know, sometimes you might be working those 80 hour weeks, or sometimes you might be, you know, going to all your kids' soccer games or whatever it is, but you kind of flow with the season. And you, like you said, you stay in the moment and make the most out of it. Well, and people, uh, lots of people think of balance as, you know, equality. It's not about equality, right? Because in this particular season or in this phase of your life, your, your work life, your work life stuff isn't balanced, right? You're a young, you know, you're a young kid working in an investment bank. You're working a hundred hours a week. It's fact. And, you know, you were not perhaps, you know, having Friday night dinners or playing in the softball league on Tuesday. You're not doing that at that at that season of your life or that stage of your life. But that doesn't mean your life is unbalanced. It can be harmonious that says, all right, the time I get off, here's how I'm going to spend it. And I actually get Sunday afternoon off and I would love to go play softball and get some of my buddies together and go play softball. I can't play in the Tuesday night league, but I can drink beer and play this particular Sunday afternoon. And I'm yeah. going to do that. And yeah. I, I, I think that that finding that harmony is the key. And if you're in a relationship um, or if you've got kids or whatever it is, it is important that everyone is harmonious. You know, my, my fiance lives in New York. I live in Denver. We both fly each week. 
for us, harmony is finding three days a week when we can be together. We know we can't do more than that. And we may be together in Florida, maybe in Colorado, it may be in New York, it might be in London, it might be in LA, it might be in Monaco. But wherever we are for three days that week, that is where we are. And that is where our focus is. And that may not work for someone else whose perception is you need to be home for dinner every night at six o'clock and be able to do all this. So, you know, there's not one size fits all, but it's, it's gotta be harmonious to keep your life moving well. Yeah. And I love, I love that word harmonious. It kind of re almost redefines it for me instead of balance, because for something to be balanced, it has to be equal. Like you said, and it's never going to be equal. And what's really interesting too, is I think, I think all of us and I, a lot of people look for this cookie cutter way, right? This cookie cutter advice that they can just, you know, everything has to be the same for me and they can put it into their life. But really kind of what you're saying, what you're resonating is it's different for everyone. And you have to figure out that balance for yourself and looking at how other people are doing things is probably not going to work for you. And you have to accept it. It may well be that you get into that investment banking job and you're like, okay, it's not worth it for me to do this for two years. It's just mm-hmm. not. I, I don't don't want to do that. And the same in public accounting. A lot of people just aren't finding that harmony in it, and that's not what they want, and that's not wrong. The key is, is you've got to understand it, what you want, and you've got to be willing to make a change to get that. The worst thing is when you're doing something and you're miserable at work and you're miserable at home and you're miserable on vacation and you're miserable everywhere because you're feeling that anxiety and stress of the need to be somewhere that you're not. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. It's not wrong. It's just different. Yeah. It's a good perspective. Yeah. That's a really good perspective. Definitely living in the moment. That's key. That's really key. So I got to ask you, what, what do you feel like are some of your biggest mistakes? These can be life. These can be work relationships, anything like that. Uh, I, I would, I would say I, uh, that, you know, any strength you have is a weakness. I'm probably, uh, as, as the guy running corporate development, I probably was not as aggressive and as confident, um, in my own views as I would have liked my tendency to look at the downside causes the downside to enter your your thinking and your evaluation. And I may have been limited by, um, by you know, my own conservatism. Uh, you know, the good news was when 08 and 09 happened and uh, a lot of us, you know, lost a huge amount of our net worth and things were upset and people got in trouble. You know, my conservative lifestyle, I, I never worried about missing a meal. I'm not worrying now about missing a meal and that served me well. And there are a lot of, you know, there's a guy I know that runs a hedge fund in Monaco and I honestly didn't know. I mean, he's got 2 billion of his own money in the hedge fund. He manages 3 billion of other money and he uses massive leverage. I honestly did not know. He either doubled his net worth from two to four or he went from 2 billion to zero. There's no in between. That's crazy. And I held on to reach out to him, right? Um, So for me, that's just not how I can live. And I think that maybe held me back. I would say the second thing is I maybe was a little bit slower than I should have been at understanding 
the power of a network and understanding how important having a network of people and a flow of data and relationships, quality relationships with people that are built up that are really, really important. And the, the, you know, the people who went to certain schools or who worked at certain firms, you know, obviously the Ivy League schools, but schools like Vanderbilt and schools like SMU and Texas have very, very powerful alumni networks. Mm. And the connections that these kids have when they've worked at Goldman Sachs or when they've worked at Morgan Stanley or when they went to Harvard Business School, um, mm. those are incredibly valuable in terms of sources of information and the ability to drive deals. Mm. And you know, I went to Colorado State University. I studied accounting because I needed to get a job. And it was several years into my career that I saw the, the networks that a lot of these people had that I didn't have. And mm. it's one of the biggest counseling things I give to young kids who don't come out of that environment is you have got to start building that network early. And you need to make relationships and you need to maintain them and you need to understand how important that is. Um, in general, I don't think that the, the people that went to these schools are any better than anyone else, but oftentimes they're way better prepared than other people are, and they're way better connected. You may be you know, the greatest treasury secretary in the history of the world, but the odds are you, know, you went to Harvard Business School and you work at Goldman Sachs. That's the first place they're going to look for the next treasury secretary or the next head of the Federal Reserve. Um, and you can overcome it and you can achieve anything you want to achieve, but those networks make life a lot easier. And, you know, it's way easier for me now after 30 years of building up these networks to call my buddy at Apollo, um, or a, a guy I know at TPG who I've done four deals with, um, and had two golf trips and one ski trip with to say, Hey, Stevie, what do you think about this? You know, is this kind of deal you guys want to partner with us on? And Steve knows me, knows Liberty, knows how we operate. I know how they operate. That deal has got way more chance of getting done than me cold calling some guy I don't know, um, you know, at KKR and saying, let's do a deal together. And I, I think people underestimate the, the importance of those networks um, and having all those people around you to help you um, succeed. The people that work for you, the people you know, the access that you get to people, the way you can get things done, um, just makes your life meaningfully easier. And there are people who are, you know, who are bridge burners. And, hmm. you know, that generally the, the, the bridges you burned coming up are often the ones you need to get back over when you hit a rough spot. And all of us are going to hit a rough spot, right? It does not happen. And it doesn't happen if you're Bill Gates, you hit rough spots. You know, you go back and you look at Steve Jobs and Apple, and he got fired from Apple. And, you know, his, his startup venture after that was a complete and dismal failure. You've seen Elon Musk fail spectacularly in all these deals before. So, um, you know, not burning those bridges and keeping those networks going 
um, very, very beneficial, makes life a lot easier. Just real quick on that. So bridge burners, is that just burning just exactly like it sounds burning relationships? I mean, how, how would you define that? Okay. Well, and I've, I've had some situations where, you know, people who have, who have worked for us, um, that, you know, you're nurturing and you're helping and you get them placed in a particular job. Uh, and it's a job that they likely wouldn't have, um, been on the top of the list to get without a recommendation or a specific Mm -hmm. phone call. You know, generally people say, you know, I ask people, you know, how many resumes that people mail to Liberty, you know, for corporate development, do you think end up on my desk? And the answer is zero of them do. Hmm. The only ones I look at come from people who I know and trust who send me someone that they know and trust. That's it. And so you go out of your way to help a kid person get a job at a certain company and they go over there and a month later they quit to take some other job. And it's like, okay, I see that. And you know, you're a, you're a big boy or a big girl and you're an adult and you can make any choice you want. But um, to me, that that raises some questions about their judgment. If if they don't have the judgment to see, wait a minute, these people at Liberty helped me out, got me this cool position. I better maybe think twice about jumping to this other thing. Mm-hmm. Because I know if that other thing doesn't work out, um, I've burned a bridge. And mm-hmm. if someone calls me about that person a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, Um, They may not get the same response from me that they would have. I may just be cool or say, I really can't comment on Susie or on Joe, which is all the person who calls me needs to know, right? I don't have to say, um, Joe, I question his judgment and he's an idiot. Uh, I just say, I really can't comment on that person. And that's all you need to know. And sometimes, you know, as people look through resumes and I do it as well with my resumes. Oh, this kid was at the NFL. You know, I call Jim Paletti at the NFL and say, hey, you know, Steve Smith worked for you. What kind of kid is he? And I'm going to look down and I'm going to find somebody that I know at one of the companies that this kid has worked for, or I'm going to know someone who knows someone at that company. And so that stuff doesn't go away. And there are people who either through their own ego or their own arrogance thinks that that stuff doesn't matter and they're going to control their own destiny. And I can tell you there are hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands who have lost job opportunities without even knowing it because someone called up to get a reference on them from someone they knew. So it may feel good to when you're leaving a job to burn a bridge, but it's just in in my case, it's never been the right decision. Just never has. It's a great perspective. Yeah, I really thought of it that way. And I, I think that's super helpful. Yeah, really helpful to see. So I got to ask just in a general sense, you know, someone, you know, I'm 21 years old, just about to graduate. How, how do you like when young people approach you to network? If that makes sense. I think this is universal as someone, like you said, just trying to build their network. How, what are some good ways they network? What are some bad ways? Any perspective on that? Yeah, I, I think the the key is, and I, 
I'm a team developer and a people developer. It is what I get most of my joy from. Um, you know, the first thing is it's your, it's your job to manage your career. It's not mine. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be proactive with you. And I'm not going to say, you know, that kid was supposed to send me that list on Tuesday and he didn't. I'm going to call him up and ask him where that list is. That's not my job. That's yours. Um, and people say, well, you know, I think you're busy and I don't want to bother you. And, uh, you know, and I say there's a fine line between persistence and obnoxiousness and you need to cross it all the time. So what is that line though? Cause I think it's hard to, it can be hard to understand. Sometimes. You need to cross that line all the time. Okay. And you, you need to, if, if someone at that level says, yeah, call me up and, and, you know, let me see that or have a look at that. You need to keep pushing and they will tell you when to go away. Don't assume, ah, they're too busy. Um, you need to keep pushing and you need to manage it. Um, and you need to be, you, you need to be good with their time and you need to do your homework. If the assignment is find me 10 companies that you like or 10 companies that you would like to get access to, do your work and have it be thoughtful. And don't send me a list that then says, okay, um, Google, Facebook, Amazon, you know, Microsoft. I mean, come on, right? Do, do some real work and have some thought into what you're doing. But it is up to you to control it. And it, it is up to you to find the time to get the feedback that you need um, and get on the schedule and make sure that, that you're, you're on the schedule and you're there and you're ready to go. And you've got specific things you want covered. You've got an agenda, you get through it and you get on about your business. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's helpful. And I, I, you know, that, that is what my expectations are. And, and, for kids that want more handholding or can't do that, I say, you know, um, there's not much more I can do to help you. Here's what you need to do. Good luck and go do it. But yeah. if the people are willing to do the work and want the help and will show up and will listen and will learn, I'm happy to do it. And I'm probably doing it for, you know, 12 to 15 people at any given point in time. Wow. Yeah. That's just aged, a lot of that. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Age 18 to 45. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, on that, it's like a little example and maybe you could, if you have any feedback, but I mean, you know, when I was asking you to do this podcast, you know, I emailed you, asked you about it and then, you know, you know, stuff happened and you didn't get back to me. So I just replied in another, another short email and said, Hey Mark, just, re- you know, just replying on my last email and you responded right away. I mean, is that kind of a good example of the persistence of, you know, following up a week later if you need to? And doing stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. And not taking it personally, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Because, because you, 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 you know, the reality is, you know, we've connected before and I like you, but I don't, you know, I don't wake up in the morning thinking about how you're doing, you know, you thinking like- about, <laughs> thinking, thinking about, um, is your curveball hanging? You know, are you throwing a bunch of hanging curveballs now? <laughs> and, uh, and you can't, your ERA is up over five in spring ball and you're sucking. Um, but the benefit of that is, as I'm flipping through things, the the first day 
that first email, it's still back there. It's still unread. It was mm-hmm. a day where some shit was happening mm-hmm. and 150 or 200 emails didn't get processed that day. Yeah. So, totally. and this, this is probably is wrong, but the way I do it is I kind of go in and process. I've got 468 unread emails right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but every email I got today, I got through. And yeah. so I figured that the email that's a month old that I haven't gotten to yet, if it was critical, somebody would have sent me another email. And so the second email you sent happened to be a day where I'm flipping through that. And I'm like, oh, you know, kid wants to do this. Fine. Send a response. Off it goes. But, mm-hmm. but had, you, had you waited and not sent it, the odds are I never would have responded to you. I just, I think that's super helpful just from people in my position to hear how you think about it as well, because obviously you're not trying to ignore me, but like you said, life happens, things come up and just sending something else to remind you or even following up again, like I would have followed up again and said, Hey Mark, just following up again. Cause I mean, I understand that you have a ton going on. And so I, I just brought that up just as a little thing, because I think people think that, oh, wow, like maybe he didn't get back to me. He must, he must not care or whatever it is. But in reality, right. just things come up and that's normal. Right. And so like and you said, persistence not, is key. Right. It is not personal. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, not, not, exactly. it's, not, it's not personal at all. And continuing to push on that and send it and let it, you know, let it churn for a while and give yourself a reminder. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. If I don't hear, I'm sending another note in a week. And yeah. then if I don't hear, I'm going to go, I'm going to send three and then I'm going to send a quirky one that says, Hey, you know, I'll buy you a beer or I'll buy you a really cool gla- glass of red wine. If you'll do this or dude, if you don't want to do this, it's cool. Just tell me to mm-hmm. that, that, that you don't want to do it. It's all good. It's all fine. Yeah. You, you figure out ways to elicit a response and everyone is like that. You know, I work for Greg Buffet and mm-hmm. I like Greg. And Greg is great. And Greg and I have a tremendous working relationship. If I sent him three emails right now, one of them he would reply to within five seconds. Hmm. One of them he would reply to within five hours. And the third one he won't reply to within five years. Hmm. And I just know that, right? It's like he he does not want to deal with this issue. And if he doesn't Hmm. have to deal with it now, He's not going to, he's never going to respond to that email. I needed to get it in there to get it in front of him, but he's just not going to. And I understand and it's not yeah. personal and it's okay. Um, mm-hmm. But that's hard for people. People have a tendency mm-hmm. to, to think it's personal. Oh, my face pissed at me. He's not answering my email. Come on. Mm-hmm. I have, I got 20 things to do on my to-do list today. All right. Mm-hmm. This morning when I started, I've gotten through five of them. I've added eight. Hmm. So the reality is of my 20, if I can end up getting eight or nine of those done a day, 10 maybe, mm-hmm. I've done really well because eight to 10 are going to come up that I didn't know anything about. Hmm. And, you know, again, that is I'm going to do what I can do in the time I've got allotted. And that's all I got to give. Mm-hmm. And so you do what you can do. And if, if number 18 doesn't get dealt with today, then it doesn't get dealt with. That's super interesting. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Yeah, that's awesome. Mark, this has been so good. I kind of want to, I want to wrap it up here. I know you have a, yeah, you I got to, do to with, I got a call in four minutes. So, okay. So last thing, what, 
any last advice? What would you be doing if you were me now? How would you be thinking about things? Anything specifically you'd be doing? No, I would be looking at my career from a very long-term standpoint, and I would be looking for an opportunity where I can learn and I can grow. And I don't care what company it is, whether it's a private equity firm or an investment banking firm or a consulting firm or a company, um, investment bank, whatever it is, you you need to be doing something where you can grow and you can learn. um, And you need to stick with that as long as that's happening. When you get to the point that you're not growing and you're not learning, then you need to be thinking about something different. And, you know, in terms of career planning, you can't plan out your career, but what you should try to plan out is what might my next gig be? And the time you start thinking about your next job is the day you start your prior job. Hmm. So, you know, you get you get an offer and you're going to work at Goldman Sachs. The first day you're starting, you're thinking about, okay, if this gig at Goldman Sachs ended, what would I do? And where would I go? And do I have any contacts or any networks of people there? You know, maybe when I'm at this conference or I'm at this bar and I meet this guy from Morgan Stanley, maybe that's a good guy to, you know, have contact with because I might need Morgan Stanley in the future. But too many people start thinking about their next job the day they leave their current job. I want you to start thinking about it the day you start. And you've got to allocate an hour or two hours a month to looking at that and saying, all right, how is this going? Am I growing? Is there a path for me to grow and move up here or not? And setting some goals of, you know, at least three, if not six or 12 months away and putting your head down and follow your process until you get to that time frame and then lift your head. You're a pitcher, right? I mean, in the, in the fifth inning, you, you shouldn't be in there saying, all right, what's my ball versus strike ratio? Where am I at strikeouts versus walks? Right. You don't want to be thinking about that. All you want to be thinking about is follow my process. Signal, pitch, you know, signal, breathe, wind up, pitch, signal, nod, breathe, wind up, pitch, follow your process. There will come to be a time where you evaluate, okay, is my process working? Um, Am I still growing here? Is this still a good thing for me? Or do I need to start thinking in the next six, nine, 12 months to do something else? Then modify your process, then put your head down, follow it. Don't keep score, you know, don't evaluate how your pitching is going through the fifth inning. Um, You know, I don't know how many interviews of pitchers who have had no hitters and didn't realize until they were like in the eighth inning that they had a no hitter going. They're not paying any attention to that. They're just following their process. Uh, And I think young kids are, 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 are too, too anxious to keep score all the way along instead of just following their process. All right, dude, I got to go. Thank you so much. This great, is so helpful. Uh, great to talk to you and, and stay in touch. And will, Mark. Yeah. Hang in there. Yes, that beer's on me when you come to New York. I'll deal. All right. Sounds All right, good. Brother. See you, Mark. Bye. Yep, take care. Bye-bye. And that wraps up this episode of the Grasping Life podcast. 
If you enjoyed it, be sure to give it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really goes a long way. And be sure to share it with someone else you think might get value as well. For more information and further episode releases, you can follow the Grasping Life podcast on Instagram. I would love to connect and hear what you think. Thank you. Until next time.